And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have somebody who is going to tell us about this geopolitical world we have going on around us. A lot of people think it's on fire. I just think it's another day uh, in the week. But Simon Schuster is going to be here to educate us all. How are you doing today, my brother? Thank you. Really good to be with you. Thank you for having me. No, thank you so much. Um, so this is where we are. I uh, start each one of our shows by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And you're at time now. And you've been reporting on Russia now for well over a decade. How did you get into reporting on Russia? And when did you realize that being a journalist would be your calling? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, so I I realized that uh, journalism would be my calling when I just tried tried reporting for my college newspaper, the Stanford Daily. Um, I'd been doing some writing before that. Um, and then a friend of mine recommended, hey, if you like writing so much, why don't you try writing an article uh, instead of writing short stories? So um, I gave it a try and realized pretty quickly that that is the thing I wanted to do. Uh, and as for the, the Russia-Ukraine reporting, um, I have Russian, I'm, I'm a native Russian speaker. Um, so my family uh, came as refugees to the United States from the Soviet Union in 1989 when I was six years old and we spoke Russian at home. And in journalism, you know, fluency in languages tends to be a bit of a superpower, certainly a competitive advantage. So I, uh, after university, I moved to, to Moscow um, and began uh, reporting just based on those language skills, um, was able to do interviews in Russian and and uh, report and write in in English, and um, felt that was that was pretty pretty useful um, at, at least in trying to be a bridge between the two cultures and societies. Look, I mean that's that's an understatement. Understanding the culture because you learned it at home and actually speaking the language. I mean that's that's something you can't teach. Don't you find that to be a value added plus plus? Yeah, it helps a lot. It also helped a lot with reporting for for this book um, about President Zelensky. Uh, and generally in re reporting about him and around him and speaking to him, because I could pick up on the subtleties of the language, the jokes he made, the cultural references, the historical references, it, in a way that is really difficult to do through a translator. Before we drill down into your book about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, can you give listeners the elevator version of why Russia invaded Ukraine and why so many countries in the EU and the U.S. have supported Ukraine? And why is Zelensky being, being successful in pushing back on Russia is vital to U.S. security and economic interest in the region? There's a lot to take on in a, in a, in a short question, but uh, I'll give it I'll a take try. it on, unpack <laughs> it. I, I, ran, I ran through that big question, but unpack it for us. Well, in, in terms of the excuses that, that Vladimir Putin of Russia presented for invading Ukraine, um, you know, essentially he, he said that uh, he's taking on the hegemony of the West the arrogance of the United States uh, and their dominance of international affairs. Uh, in his declaration of war speech, it was interesting to note that he didn't mention uh, Zelensky. Um, he, he talked for the first 20 minutes of that speech about the United States um, and, and his intention to, to humble uh, that, uh, as he called it, empire of lies. Um, he saw Ukraine as, as instrumental and crucial to that to that. Uh, kind of geopolitical mission that he sees himself as, as undertaking because um, Ukraine had been moving toward integration with the West for a long time. Uh, you know, consistently over decades, the Ukrainian people have expressed a desire to uh, join the European Union and undergo the kinds of reforms and the kind of economic development 
that other former uh, Soviet republics, former vassal states of Moscow have already undergone, like Poland, the Baltic states, Ukraine wanted to do that too. Um, and Russia uh, under Putin refused to allow that. They tried every which way they could through politics, through corruption, through propaganda um, to prevent Ukraine from taking this course. But eventually, when all those efforts failed, Putin decided to reach for the hard power. First in 2014, when he uh, sent troops uh, initially uh, 10 years ago now to, to occupy and annex the region of Crimea, to try to chomp off pieces of territory in eastern Ukraine. And what we saw in 2022, about two years ago now, um, is a full-scale invasion where Putin went all in and said, that's it, You know, we're, we're going to take the entire country, we're going to install a puppet leader, we're going to kill, capture Zelensky or force him to flee. Um, so he he sort of uh, you know put all his chips on the table at that point. Um, for the United States, the, the second part of your question and, and its allies, this, this was an enormous threat. Uh, you know, it was, it was a threat to European security. And if you take Putin at his word, he doesn't intend to stop at Ukraine. He intends, again, to challenge the United States and its European allies and, and their, as he says, it dominance over international affairs. So for the Europeans, especially uh, the NATO allies that the United States has in Europe, it was, it was essential to stop this war in Ukraine before it goes any further. If Putin were to were allowed to, to swallow up all of Ukraine, the Russian borders would reach right up to the NATO alliance in, in Poland and other countries, Romania. Uh, so uh, it, it needed to be to be stopped. Um, and, and that's, I think, why the United States has seen it as such a valuable strategic interest to uh, to send weapons, to send financial aid, and to give Ukraine a political and diplomatic support as well. Um, that's kind of the, the elevator version. That's a long elevator ride already, but uh, I could keep going. Let's talk about this book while you while you think about how we keep going. Maybe you can weave some of those uh, some of those thoughts into this. The showman inside the invasion that shook the world and made a leader of Vladimir Zelensky. First, talk about the title. Why the showman? And for people who don't really know who, am I pronouncing his name right? Vladimir Zelensky. Yeah, very good. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Can you give Can you give us the cliff notes on the person, the cliff notes version on who he is and and how he became president? Well, the the, the title I chose is is essential to answering that question. He uh, spent his entire career, about twenty years, um, as uh, a showman, an entertainer, a TV. Uh, uh, producer, movie maker, script writer, and a comedian, uh, particularly specializing in kind of uh, stage acts, vaudeville, slapstick, and, and stand-up comedy, and, and political satire. That, that was his, his um, main, uh, what, was, what he was famous for in Ukraine for most of his life and career as his generation's greatest political satirist. Uh, in 2018, 2019, he oh, decided to... Wait, 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 Zelensky was basically John Stewart. Yeah, that's a fair comparison. Uh, pe people make that comparison all the time. I think that's that's a very good one. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, M maybe. Yeah, also, also funny. I mean, the, the difference I think would be that John Stewart doesn't also make rom coms and sitcoms and uh, reality TV shows. I mean, um, in terms of entertainment and, and television, Zelensky was a jack of all trades. You know, he he was the envy of the entertainment industry in Ukraine before he went into politics. Um, and his skills as an entertainer, I argue in the book, um, were very useful to him when the invasion broke out, because for a small country like Ukraine to take on a nuclear superpower like Russia, it needed to get the world support. It needed to get military aid, um, political support, financial aid. 
And in order to get that aid, he needed to make the world feel this war as their own. He needed to make people believe that that uh, you know this this war Ukraine was fighting for all of our values of democracies. It was standing up for for Europe against the Russian threat, and to really grab hold and keep our attention for as long as possible. And and his skills uh, as as an actor as as a showman and really helped him to do that uh, for I think much longer than than another leader might have. He had this amazing charisma that kept us all rooting for him for a long time. I mean, but did he have any military experience? Because one of the things that people have been surprised by is Ukraine's ability to fight back with. I mean, I think it goes to the fact that Russia is not the mighty military force that people made it out to be, uh, but also the fact that Ukraine had more savvy than most people knew militarily. That's, that's true. Yes, definitely. He had no uh, military experience. And, you know, going into politics and in the early couple of years of his presidency, when, when I was following him around and, and reporting on his administration, he didn't have much interest in the military's affairs either. He he was uh, adamant about trying to negotiate a peace with Russia and to prevent the kind of invasion we later saw play out. But, uh, you know, once that failed, he, he did, um, you know, quickly begin to uh, uh, try to toughen Ukraine's stance, to try to deter Russia uh, by by building up Ukraine's military, getting that um, military support coming in from the West. And as the book chronicles over the course of the invasion, the first year of the invasion, Zelensky uh, turned out to be a very fast learner. Um, you know, in the early days and weeks of the invasion, he really trusted the generals to do the fighting and to make the battlefield decisions. And they turned out to be very skilled at that. Uh, they did uh, defeat and humble uh, the, Russian, uh, the Russian forces in a number of critical battles. Uh, but over time, what we see is, is Zelensky kind of coming into his own also as a military commander and, and getting his own ideas and priorities of what needs to happen on the battlefield and in some cases telling the generals what to do. Um, yeah, so the, the book lays that out as well. I, I think by the end of the book, you see him as, as, a, as a, you know, not only as a, as a president, a politician, but as a fully formed a wartime leader. Hmm. And, and, you know, we talked about his commonalities and the lack of military experience and his his um, his acting or, or comedic chops, his savvy. How do you compare him to Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump? Well, um, yeah, I think those comparisons are, are reasonable to make. They, they certainly have some similarities. I mean, I'll say this um, in my first uh, interview with. President Zelensky, when he was not yet president, when he was running for president, he seemed to have um, uh, a confidence in his own ability to break through to Trump based on some of their similarities. So Trump was also a reality TV star um, before he went into politics. And I think even more importantly, they were both outsiders to politics. They both campaigned on this idea that they were going to come in, drain the swamp, breathe new life into the political elites and clear out the, the stale old clans that had been ruling the countries uh, for, for a very long time. So I think that message they have in common. Um, otherwise, you know, they are uh, they're very different <laughs> in their approach and their, in their, I think, moral fortitude and their values as leaders and the way that they lead. Um, you know, but, but those similarities were certainly there. Uh, yeah, Reagan, I, ha I haven't talked with Zelensky much about comparing com comparisons to Reagan, but Reagan was also an actor, yeah, famously. Yeah, that, that may be as far as it goes. I, uh, talk about the savvy and, and how is is one of the things that you said was that he was captivating and you I, it felt like when you were 
talking about Zelensky and his his making America feel like the war was theirs, you use the word was a lot. Is his is his influence over the US media and policymakers waning as even as we discuss this bill today where Ukrainian and, and Israeli funding is tied to the border, do you see Ukraine as as floundering in the halls of power and in the media structure? I mean, the, the last time I, I talked to Zelensky last fall, he, he made very clear that, as he put it, uh, the fatigue with the war or frustration with the war is, is rolling along like a wave across the United States and Europe. He feels that. And it's pretty obvious. You know, I look back on um, one episode I describe in the book, uh, President Zelensky's visit to uh, Washington right before Christmas of 2022. So at the end of the first year of the war, the first calendar year. And um, and he was received like an absolute war hero. You know, there were on, on both sides of the aisle. You know, I, I couldn't keep count of how many standing ovations there were when he gave his uh, his speech uh, to the joint session of Congress. He was received in the Oval Office by uh, President Biden and the First Lady, Joe Biden. Uh, and, you know, he, he was he was absolutely lauded as, as, a, as a savior of Europe. Um, if you look at his visit, the, the next visit that was in September of 2023, so nine months later, it was a very different atmosphere. By then, the Republicans had already made clear that they intended to uh, close the taps when it came to uh, U.S. financial and, and military support um, and, and to demand uh, a clear idea from Zelensky of where he was taking this war, what he was going to do. It was, it was a very different and much more somber attitude. And, and reception for him that time. So I, I think if, if you if you look at look at that uh, time frame, yes, definitely it's, it's going down. He feels that, and it's something he's he's uh, concerned with combating every day to make sure that people still stay on his side and and finding new reasons to in, inspire the world, inspire the West to uh, continue supporting Ukraine. What motivated you to write this book, and who do you think is the audience for this book? I mean, I think the audience is pretty universal. Even if people don't follow the war itself, it's it's a study in leadership that you you couldn't script. <laughs> you know, even the best Hollywood screenwriters couldn't come up with, with the story, the trajectory of his life as he's lived it and the way that he's stepped into a role for which he fundamentally wasn't prepared and that nobody really expected him to do well at. So as a study in leadership, I, I think it is universal. Um, for me to write this book, uh, you know, I have been reporting on Russia and Ukraine for 17 years now. Um, when the invasion broke out, I, I've been covering the war for 10 years uh, since since that initial invasion in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. So uh, it, it would have been dereliction of duty, I think, to, to not really focus on um, trying to explain and translate this war uh for an American and an international audience. That's just what I do. Um, and I, I, it was quite clear given my my relationships, established relationships with President Zelensky and his team that that I, I could do it better. I was in a pretty unique position to, to get the access one needs to, to write a book like this. Wow, I mean, an access is something that you uh, definitely got to, you know, one of, I, <laughs> it's very rare that I can say somebody around the world probably has a 100% name ID, literally one of the most famous people in the entire world. Uh, what do you think American politicians could learn from Zelensky? I mean, one thing that he would he would say is, you know, lead a little bit more based on your values and not your political interests. That's that's been a, a frustration um, that he's he's had in dealing with the United States, U.S. politicians a lot. 
I don't think that would go so much for President Biden. Uh, when I when I talk to Zelensky and his team about Biden, they they do seem to feel that he he really his heart is in it with Ukraine. He really believes that this is a just cause and he wants to support them. But a lot of politicians that the Ukrainians have dealt with over the years um, in Washington, they have the sense that you know it, it's not about alliances and and it's not about supporting these values of democracy, sovereignty, uh, and and um, you know European security. Uh, and international security, often political interests and bipartisan feuds get in the way of the values that American politicians profess. And, and I think he, he would urge them to, uh, to, to lead according to their values. And as we kind of go through this process of, of dissecting who Zelensky really is, and he's probably somebody that, you know, we'll, we will, history will look kindly upon, can you just articulate to people who may not know all of the diplomatic victories that he's notched in the last few years. Can you put those into context for listeners? I, I think the diplomatic victories really, um, you know, uh, took center stage once the invasion was underway. But the, the kinds of things that he accomplished in, uh, in in inspiring and in some ways shaming Western leaders to support him have been really dramatic. You know, as I as I write in the book, you know, he he convinced. Even a country like Switzerland, which had been neutral for all its history, Switzerland defines its its uh, place in Europe as as the neutral place where you can you can park your money and, and they don't they don't get involved in conflict. Even Switzerland supported the the sanctions against Russia and and uh, had to step up because honestly the the way that Zelensky presented this uh, war uh, to the world made it very difficult politically for uh, foreign leaders to not support him. Uh, the the upswell in grassroots support for Ukraine's cause, the sympathy that 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 was um, rising around the world, he fueled that. He inspired it to a large extent, and it made it politically, I mean, I wouldn't say impossible, but painful for Western politicians to try to stay on the sidelines or support Russia or or not have Ukraine's back. So I, I think that is that is a powerful diplomatic uh, achievement, and he, he did it through some pretty um, unorthodox means. Uh, you know, by speaking not only to foreign leaders, but to the people who elect those leaders, to speaking to all of us through his messages, through his speeches, through his uh, videos that he would film on his cell phone. You know, he spoke at the Grammy Awards. He would speak at, at mass demonstrations by video link uh, across Europe. So uh, he he really uh, sent his message directly to to all of us, and that's also quite a quite a diplomatic uh, achievement. I think. Last couple of questions for you. How, if all, has reporting from him and writing his book changed you? How has it changed me? I mean, this this book has been uh, tough. The deadline was was very um, punishing. <laughs> we had to. We, we felt we had to get it out fast. Um, you know, partly as as we sensed that that the world's attention was flagging, and and I personally wanted to make sure that people remembered how how this whole thing started, how we got here and, and why we supported Ukraine in the beginning and, and why I think we, we should continue to, to support it, uh, you know, uh, un, under Zelensky's leadership. So that that changed me in the sense of, yeah, it, um, it certainly made me more disciplined in, in, um, in writing a, a huge number of words per, per day. Um, but as I said, you know, uh, I've been reporting on Russia and Ukraine for a long time, basically my whole career. So in, in that sense, you know, I, I've, I've, um, I've stuck to what I know, um, and, and I don't think it's changed me that much. It, it was just a very, very punishing deadline and very fast that we had to, to produce this thing. Tell people how they can buy the book and how they can follow you on social media and follow all three things geopolitical. 
Well, let's see. I mean, the book is available in all good bookstores. Um, it's published by HarperCollins. And, uh, you know, I'm still reporting on uh, Ukraine and Russia actively for Time Magazine. You can you can read my stories there. We just had one um, a couple of weeks ago about Zelensky's plans going forward for the next year. I think that's that's also you know important to keep our sights on, not just how we got here, but where we're going with this war. Where are we going? Um, it's it's turned into a tough slog, but uh, the Ukrainians are um, they're they're clever and they're they're not going to sit around and wait for someone like Donald Trump to take office in the United States and turn off the U.S. support and sort of try to force them into some kind of capitulation or negotiation that they don't want to be a part of. They're actively preparing the mechanisms to continue fighting as long as they feel is necessary. The main thing to, to watch there is domestic production of arms inside Ukraine. They've had an enormous amount of success, especially with drone warfare, developing attack drones, developing long-range missiles that they're using to strike deep behind enemy lines, deep inside Russian territory. And I think that's that's an important trajectory of where this war is headed and where Zelensky intends to take it. Simon Schuster, we appreciate you. It's amazing your name is Simon Schuster and you're on HarperCollins, <laughs> but I'm going to leave those jokes that you've heard your entire life to itself. Uh, thank you for joining the <laughs> Sellers Podcast. Hope you have a blessed day. Thank you so much. So great to be with you. Thank you. It's going to be